In this session, we'll be speaking with Wan Young Cho, where we'll be discussing some of the ways that she's been impacted by COVID, has noticed some of the family therapy fields and contexts affected by COVID, her relationship with third spaces, the role of spirituality, and some of the complexity necessary for family therapy intentions with social justice, cultural values. Welcome to the After Podcast. I am Naveed Zamani and I'm your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Wan Young Cho. Uh, Dr. Wan Young Cho is an assistant professor in the Marriage, Couples, and Family Therapy Program at the Lewis and Clark Graduate School and an interdisciplinary scholar, practitioner, educator. Her research and training focus on culturally responsive and socio-culturally attuned theories, practices, and pedagogy. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist in the states of Oregon and California, is an AMFT-approved clinical supervisor, and is active in the American Family Therapy Academy. She's also an Asian American Psychological Association member, and Wan Young is a bilingual and bicultural 1.5 generation Korean American, and passionate about access and equity of mental health services and education for the historically marginalized communities. Part of her role at AFTA includes being the co-chair of the research committee. Thank you so much for being here, Wanyang. I personally met Wanyang at the SCSU San Diego State University MFT program, where she was a couple years ahead of me. Uh, and we have a shared mentor in our uh, in Dr. Gerald Monk. So we are mentee siblings in that way. And we spent some time teaching together at San Diego State University. And in general, I've felt really connected with uh, Wan Young and our shared experience of being bilingual family therapists. And I was particularly drawn to Wan Young's interest and attention to the role of multilingual experiences in therapy. So super grateful to have you here, Wan Young. Thanks Thank for joining you. us. And I'm uh, in particular curious and interested in uh, what's drawing your attention these days in your work. Man, I feel like a mess. <laughs> Because I think, um, you know, we've been in this uh, COVID land, I think, for a little over two years now. Um, and I think that has affected a lot of the ways that um, I've been thinking about uh, my work, my research, the practice of therapy, um, and my experience as a all the intersectionalities that I occupy, including being multilingual. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really messy right now. I think, I hope everybody is in it with me <laughs> and I'm not alone. <laughs> I certainly am. Um, I can relate strongly to the post-COVID. I'm hesitant to say that, but mm -hmm. as we're kind of moving into a different period, and for those listening ahead of time, we're having this conversation here in April 2022. Mm -hmm. So our American societies are starting to move towards um, no mask mandates and mm -hmm. some of that stuff. Yeah. I'm curious, wondering if it's okay to ask. Mm -hmm. um, curious what intersections have become visible or more apparent to you in the context of this mess and COVID land? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Man, lots of things. I think one of the first things actually that's really prevalent is um, there's a lot, there's a flood now of um, students and um, folks who are wanting to be marriage and family therapists. I think they're really, um, the sort of COVID crisis um, 
mm. has created sort of a social crisis, or I would actually say the crisis was already there, but it made it more apparent. So there's now a lot of folks who are interested in our field and interested in doing this work. Um, and as an instructor now, as a, as a faculty member, um, I, my intersections as a faculty, um, training new therapists and then creating space for, you know, uh, multilingual for folks, marginalized folks sort of who haven't traditionally been represented in our field. Um, you know, there's a new generation of them sort of coming in and entering our practice. Um, so that is sort of at the forefront. And from there, you know, my experience um, as a multilingual, or I should say bilingual, bilingual sort of immigrant um, woman of color um, in a predominantly sort of white institution, a white town. I'm in, I'm located in Portland, Oregon. Um, yeah, just uh, being multilingual and sort of being visibly not white in this setting is, is really present for me. Um, another actually really interesting sort of accidental thing that's <laughs> kind of rose, risen to surface is um, actually this sort of idea around spirituality, which was actually not planned at all. Um, but that has also been um, highlighted from the COVID mess. Um, I did, I wrote a paper with Dr. Peter Frankel, actually, who's uh, the other co-chair of our uh, research committee on um, on practicing family therapy in COVID land. Um, and some a part of that included spirituality, and that also seems to have garnered, garnered a lot of interest. So I think um, being multilingual and sort of occupying um, third spaces in my personal and professional life has sort of lended itself into um, trying to make sense of this mess. <laughs> and so it sort of colors or sort of... Um, starts in giving a story, right, or interpretation of of what's been happening the last two years. I don't know if that's making any sense to you. I think so. I'd like to ask a little bit if that's okay. Yeah. I'm a bit curious. Um, I wonder if you could describe the color, the color of the social crisis or this mess in, in particular – in particular, in the ways that you're positioned as a multilingual non-white person, like I wonder what kind of vantage that's given you to the social crisis and how you understand it, particularly yeah, no. as it intersects with your role as a mm -hmm. MFT educator and practitioner. I think what COVID has done for the American context, at le least, is that it has sort of stopped our big sort of industrial modern machine <laughs> because it made us stop with um, the social distancing, everything kind of shut down for a while, right? So it started, um, it made all of us stop and take stock at where we're at. And I think a lot of the things that have really sort of been bubbling underneath the surface that as somebody who occupies a third space has noticed um, has been noticing, has sort of now become apparent for a lot more people. So what has happened, I think, is um, there's a lot of the, uh, a lot of people in the American society who sort of started facing or seeing things for the first time that perhaps I've 
I have more experience in history seeing. And so I think when I give voice or start articulating or describing what's happening, I think um, that comes from my previous experiences and previous understandings um, as a woman of color, as a bilingual um, person who has walked through the American education system and sort of the training of marriage and family therapy. Um, I think that people find helpful, you know, um, that the way that I'm, I'm maybe articulating or understanding or describing. Um, and that sort of helps, I guess, in the training and the education too, because there's a lot of students, again, who are sort of um, interested in mental health and pursuing this career. And I think people in positions similarly to me are able to um, articulate and show and train folks in a new way or a different way or way that's landing better. And when you say people similar to me, you mean in the third space, right? I think so. I wonder if you could say more about this third space, because it sounds like there's some ways that it's um, giving you access to some ideas or perspectives that may mm-hmm. have been obscured to others prior to COVID and now mm-hmm. are much more visible. Yeah. And there's a way, too, that it sounds like you're uh, speaking about how that has intersected with a lot of com- folks coming into the MFT field, if that's a correct line that I'm drawing through that. Does that question make any sense? Yeah, maybe I should start with maybe describing what I mean by third space. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, because I think that word gets used often in different places and mean different things. Um, For me, the word third space or that expression sort of comes from um, some literature and actually bilingual education field. (laughs) Um, So when I say I'm interdisciplinary, I'm really interdisciplinary. And my PhD is actually in education. So I've been exposed to a lot of um, literature in different fields in education. One of them is bilingual education. And there, um, there's a concept called third space that gets created by uh, performance and mixture of multiple languages in the same space. So um, in the cl- so this is in the ling- um, education literature. So when in the classroom space, for example, when you are Um, giving everybody access to not only English, but Spanish as well. So you have bilingual education. Then the space that gets created, that learning space, becomes a third space where now you have access to both languages, but you're not not, um, having to choose one or the other. And I think um, that concept actually has given sort of language and articulation to my experience all my life. (laughs) I think not just in classroom spaces, but just in my social spaces and professional spaces. um, I have access to two languages and that gives me access to two ways, to distinct ways of seeing, interpreting, experiencing, connecting, connecting. And what that does then is rather than me being tied to having to choose one or the other, I get to be in this hybrid space where I get to make my own. Um, And I think from there, when you have sort of like polarizing um, social contexts, like right now with uh, what COVID has brought to the American society, um, 
I think my practice in sort of occupying that third space of not that or that um, has really influenced, I think, the way that I think about relationship, um, society, maybe even um, human experiences, and then more concretely, you know, pedagogy or therapy. Um, does, that, does that make sense at all? I think so. I mean, let me know if this captures or is a fair rendering that being in the third space where you have kind of vantage, as I understand it, to two epistemological worlds shaped by language. Yeah. Like, I guess in my world of assumptions, I connect mm-hmm. language and epistemology. Mm-hmm. And you have access to two now. And yeah. So then you're occupying a third space. You're not having to, like, privilege one or the other. Mm-hmm. But you're able to examine things across co- a couple mm-hmm. contexts. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if that's a correct rendering or fair rendering. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what you've noticed from that third space over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, I think one of the biggest things is sort of, you know, um, the thing that's relevant, I think, maybe to um, the current context of COVID or post-COVID in the academic setting is sort of this dichotomy between privileging um, uh, physical health over mental health. And what I mean by that is um, somehow (laughs) those two things have got split into two things and they're in opposite. They're in um, tension with each other where you have to socially distance and wear masks and sort of be separated um, in order to, you know, practice physical health. But then what that ends up happening is then we get disconnected, right? Uh, um, And sort of our relational needs don't get met. And then that exacerbates sort of like the relational and mental health. And those two things are at odds with each other um, in the sort of dichotomy world. And I think people, folks get sort of pulled to have to side with one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, But sort of occupying a third space I'm kind of curious about that dichotomy like does that have to be two opposite mutually exclusive things um that would be an example <laughs> um if I could I ask you a question Monyo? uh-huh because I'm I'm drawn to this piece you're talking about like the ways that there's this dichotomy of the physical and the mental health and mm-hmm. COVID has had us privileged the physical mm-hmm. health mm-hmm and I'm wondering how you organize a critique of that. Cause, and I say that because if in, my, in some of the worlds that I'm in, um, just, that kind of represents a very classic Cartesian and in some contexts like locating that in a linguistic thing. And for listeners, like when I refer to Cartesian, I'm referring to like Descartes' separation of the mind and body and some mm-hmm. of the political and cultural Mm-hmm. implications of that in the English language that aren't yeah. necessarily present in other languages. Like, is right. this like a linguistic thing that you're referring to that you've noticed? Or is there some other way you've come uh, to that understanding? I think for me, language um, is a marker of an experience. And so because it's a marker, it helps to sort of articulate and um, make visible um, experiences. But it's not a perfect tool either so um, I don't want to limit it to just language but I do think that 
sort of if I was to um, think about uh, the sort of life experiences and sort of ways of being I had to practice over my life as a bilingual person or bicultural person. I'm using that interchangeably, actually, bilingual and bicultural, because to me, language is a marker of culture, right? So right now in the way that I'm talking, those are interchangeable. And I think my experience as someone who has access to both distinct to distinct languages or cultures or epistemologies, right? Um, I think I was able to practice a, a way of existing that helps me sort of resist um, getting sucked into the di- dichotomy of things. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's what my research is about, actually, is sort of articulating that experience and that what all goes into resisting the dichotomy, um, because then that sort of is where space for change happens, right? Um, and space for having choices and um, imagining something different, um, creating something new. I think all of those things come when we're sort of liberated from having to choose between limited options. Mm. Um, and so I think language was one way of me sort of marking and articulating that experience. But more and more, especially as I'm in this mess um, with COVID, um, it's not just the language for me anymore. I mean, the spirituality thing is also a similar thing of that, where I think in the academy or in the sort of American culture, now the dichotomy has become um, secularism versus spiritual reality, right? Like, can you and so there's separation of church and state. There's um, you're not allowed to talk about spirituality in certain settings, or you know it's not polite anymore. Just like it's not polite to talk about politics, right? Like there's just so many things now where we have separated and sort of um, siloed to uh, human experiences in two sort of distinct columns and sort of make assumptions that those two things can't coexist together. Um, So that's another thing that I sort of see. So the theme here, I think, is, um, yeah, I think it's back to this sort of third space idea. And it's still kind of messy and not fully articulated. I'm kind of working through it right now. Yeah. I appreciate you speaking to a, like, super complex uh, subject. And I... I'm appreciating if if it's fair to locate it like this. I'm appreciating your comment on spirituality and spirit, secularism. I'm curious about that to hear more, primarily because it it reminds me of some of the decolonial critiques I've heard about secularism mm. and its use in mm-hmm. like Western, uh, yeah, like uh, Western context. Like I'm thinking mm-hmm. of some of the ways that one of the uh, Boutelges speaks to French secularism as a form of. Uh, neutrally quote-unquote furthering anti-muslim sentiments mm. like mm-hmm. the banning of the hijab for example mm-hmm. in france yeah i'm not sure if that's a fair way to locate some of what you're describing um but i i, I want to hear more about this if that's okay i'm curious about spirituality because it does feel like the mft field in my experience has this particular relationship with spirituality where we have this kind of pastoral counseling history embedded Mm -hmm. into the 
Yeah, and I think even the institution of marriage, for example, is is sort of really um, traditionally religious, right? right. Um, and sort of this assumption, uh, the the whole field is sort of established on heteronormative, monogamous sort of norms um, of this sort of nuclear family unit. Um, and I think that is heavily, heavily influenced by some of the... Um, I want to say Christian, probably Christian um, traditions, um, but not. It's. I mean, it's not limited to Christianity, but I do think that it's associated to that at least. Um, and so, you know, there's there's questions about that too. Um, Interesting, because in my experience, I'm thinking about some of the after folks that we're both connected to, where. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of some of the family therapy history is resisting exactly that very conservative thread. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so it's really interesting to me because I hear two, again, dichotomous history about, about our field. Mm-hmm. One is that it comes from this sort of Christian agenda of um, needing to protect the nuclear family, which is heteronormative, you know, monogamous, blah, 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 blah. And then there's also sort of this um, tradition in the family therapy or, of sort of breaking away from um, traditions and from um, sort of singular ways of thinking, right? And sort of um, being more um, contextual and complicated in the way that we understand mental health and relational health. Um, and I guess... That's the thing, though, is that both of those things could exist, you know? I mean, I guess that's what, that's how I think about third space, is that, you know, both of those movements might have influenced the, the creating, creation of this field. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I, it makes things complicated because right now, especially, again, um, COVID has sort of really um, given us space and time to focus on some of the social injustices that's been sort of underneath the American culture and sort of American society. Um, But then what that has done, I think, what I'm observing now is, again, sort of this dichotomy of like, you know, white folks against people of color or um, police against you know, people or, um, uh, I don't know, females against the males. And, you know, like just this um, simplification of sort of like the complex things that are happening in our lives into sort of these two things. And then people having to choose which one is right and which one is wrong in sort of a very totalizing way. Um, It feels easier to do and I feel like that's not that's not helping us in the long run now I'm getting nervous saying this right oh no I love it you know like for example the the whole and I don't know too much about I will I will confess I don't know too much about sort of like the decolonization and that um body of work I'm I'm not I don't have access to that. But oftentimes when we're talking about sort of colonization or decolonization, 
is in, at least in the American sort of settings and at least in the in the settings that I'm I have access to, it kind of tends to be about the European colonization forces against the native folks. Um, and sort of so then that gets simplified into white people versus non-white folks. Um, and I have to say, as a Korean American, we in at least in the Asian con- context, uh, we have colonizations that we have colonizers that don't look white or do you know what I mean? Like we there's things it's more complicated than what we make it seem. On Yang, you're, un- you're revealing critical <laughs> secrets here. And it makes me a little bit nervous. I'm getting a little heated here. Um, what what makes you nervous about saying do. that? I'm just curious. Because I think that um, I feel I have internalized the pressure to have to pick a side mm. in a sort of totalizing way. And I think when push comes to sho- shove, you will find me on one side over the other. But I don't, I mean, rushing it- to... Sorry, let me interrupt you, please. Yeah, go ahead. I was just kind of conceptualizing nervousness as like some signal that you're having to take sides. Or like the sides exist, or it's a... Or even me resisting to take to taking sides, I feel like is I'm opening myself up for... I, I think this is the moment where I become aware that there's an audience to our yes. conversation. Well, let me join you so mm-hmm. we can both be nervous together. <laughs> yeah, because... You know, to make make the obvious explicit, we'll both likely listen to this podcast in a couple of years and be like, hmm, I disagree with a lot of what I just said there. That's my yeah. experience with most of the things I say or write, um, <laughs> which stresses me about writing because it gets stamped into place for a long time. Mm-hmm. That being said, um, some of the ways I'm kind of interpreting what you're saying and drawing it into my own experiences is this thing that like, well, it feels very Judeo-Christian, right, to construct this like right or wrong, good or bad, good versus evil thing, which in that framework and categorizations, we have the diabolical and the heavenly. And so Mm -hmm. I think in a decolonial spirit sometimes, or not spirit, but like sometimes a decolonial energy might inadvertently align with that to construct the indigenous as the heavenly and the European colonizer as the diabolical, Mm -hmm. in which there's like really no dialogue available or possible mm-hmm. within that construction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And also some of the maybe Western-centric ways of constructing colonization mm-hmm. as a purely European thing, if I'm understanding you correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that also... I don't know how to say this, actually. You, you were saying this earlier, and I kind of perked up because I was like, ooh, this is exciting because I agree and disagree simultaneously with some of what you're saying Mm -hmm. respectfully of course Mm -hmm. and with love Mm -hmm. um here's the story i have for you yeah um uh, in the domestic violence work that i do like with i with the refugee middle eastern communities i work with the the institutionalized white supremacy of the law enforcement and the criminal justice systems in general were just really obvious it felt really apparent to me Oh, yeah. Um, and going into the literature, you find primarily people of color writing about that and being like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a lot of white supremacy going on. Mm-hmm. And I recall doing presentations, let's say like 2014, 15, at like uh, various domestic violence, like the San Diego Domestic Violence Council and like various 
DV context. Mm-hmm. And I remember this one in particular where I brought forward a fairly scathing critique of the centrality of law enforcement and courts as a mm-hmm. primary vehicle for mm-hmm. supporting families experiencing mm-hmm. domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And after, man, lawyers came up, a, a lawyer came up to me very upset and a police officer came up to me up after very upset, being like, you're harming our, mm. our field, our institution. Mm. Mm-hmm. Your representations aren't fair to all the good work people are doing. We all want to help people, you know, the stuff that you've heard. Mm-hmm. Which, which I I can, uh, I I I have some I have compassion yeah. for being exposed to critiques of your field and feeling unsettled. Yeah. And mm-hmm. after the Black Lives Movement uh, protests mm-hmm. after George Floyd and mm-hmm. what was it, twenty nineteen now, twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Whatever during COVID, mm-hmm. um, all those years run together. <laughs> no, I, mm-hmm. I have found zero pushback on those very same mm. critiques in those very same presentations. Actually, yeah. I get a ton of comments like, "Wow, thank you for saying that." Yeah, and it was totally Black Lives Matter movement that gave me the space to just make statements that felt obvious. Yeah, here's I guess I'm I'm um, I'm wanting to sort of clarify because I'm not in disagreement with you. I think what I'm trying to say here is. um, And now, again, this is like maybe third space thing, but I think depending on the role. Right. So when we are um, sort of out there advocating and critiquing sort of these big movements and these systems, those things, of course, exist. And they need to be critiqued and they need to be re-looked at. And yeah, that then has a singular story or whatever, right? Singular representatives and all the good people that are part of that community that, you know, we've heard that before. I guess for me, when I'm saying those things, I'm speaking from like a practitioner stance, right? Because I'm, I'm I'm training future practitioners here. And our Lewis and Clark program um, makes social justice um, one of the values, um, kind of like San Diego State, right? Like it, it's one of the values we profess. Uh, we profess to train um, practitioners who are um, sort of social justice oriented. And that's important to me, right? And that's important to um, the students who come here. But what ends up happening is the students who make their way to our program are then sort of occupying the space where social justice is a dichotomy. And um, that, when you're in a social advocate role, is needed. When you're in a family therapy situation and you're sitting in space, spaces with families, um, those things sort of start getting complicated. And we can't sort of simplify those things into dichotomous Things I think that's sort of where I'm coming from. So I'm <laughs> I'm not speaking actually as a social advocate right now. I'm speaking as a um, a trainer and a practitioner. If you want to, uh, like for example, DV work, right? If you if there's a family who's sort of trying to stay together and trying to work through this situation, depending on sort of safety, of course, and and all of that, but it's not helpful. Um, I think, to paint the perpetrator of violence into one singular light in that context, 
that's that's not helpful for the work that we do. And I think that's what I'm trying to say here is when we're sort of in this micro context of practice and sort of learning how to be in compassionate spaces with folks who, you know, bear their souls and secrets that are not, that might not be politically correct. Um, we have to be able to sort of space, sit in a space of um, complicated stories and curiosities and really understand how to sort of untangle these knots, right? Rather than sort of simplifying it as, well, because of patriarchy, sir, you are, you know, like that's that's not helpful in that context. And I think that's where I'm coming from. So I wasn't really making state, like, so if you have a family with a police member, you know, a member of the police force in the family, um, you can't approach that family being like, all cops are bad and racist, you know, like that's just not helpful. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. So um, I wanted to clarify that because I don't want, I don't want folks to misunderstand me sort of in that sort of big spaces. But I think I'm talking really from um, being a practitioner and sort of connecting people together and healing together. That requires a more complicated stance than a dichotomy sort of orientation to life. Right. Yes. Well, I want to say just I'm so grateful for your willingness to talk about this despite the presence of nervousness. Because <laughs> um, it's like really, I, I think it's important stuff. The way I'm interpreting what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is mm-hmm. this is how you said it, but let me know if it's fair. Like activism, the social justice thing that we're talking about requires like a multilinguality, right? So mm-hmm. there's like various forms of activism that are necessary in any movement. Yeah. And as I'm hearing you're saying that, like, in my practice and my educator or instructor role for family therapy to, like, kind of mm-hmm. drill down to that role, mm-hmm. there's something, there's this particular level of nuance and complexity that resists dichotomies really necessary to work with families in ways that are useful. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really important to sort of highlight the big picture, right? So, for example, the institutionalized racism or sort of um, those big pictures is important to, for the con- to set up the context of um, training and educating um, practitioners who are sort of uh, social, social justice oriented. And I guess we also need to train them in resisting the dichotomous narrative that that sometimes invites. Um, like we need to grow skills to understand the nuance of that. And maybe sort of back if we're going to use the language of metaphors, right? So, um, you know, there's a time when you need to speak standard English because that's the audience. And then there are times when I need to go into my Conglish mode, right? My Korean and English mix. Or maybe I need to go to standard English sometimes or standard Korean sometimes, depending on what I'm trying to convey and who I'm trying to convey it to. And I think that's the same thing with um, with the way that I think about uh, our work as socially just or s- social justice oriented um, systemic therapists. I think that's important to sort of consider. Yeah. I'm appreciating this, especially because there's a, I think sometimes a social, ju- well, yeah, it's maybe an unnecessary, now I'm nervous. But I feel like sometimes a social justice <laughs> tag 
it's become a marketing tag in some ways. Yes, it has. Or that has yeah, sorry. Yeah, that has gotten simplified into something really simple when it's not like that, you know. Um, I, I think about this often, you know, we, we need um, Malcolm X and MLK. Like, we need both both of those movements. Um, you know, in the Korean independence movement, we had the fighters in the streets, and then we had the the quiet folks who sort of survived pretending, but were smuggling things and sort of smuggling people. And, you know, we, we need both. We need, um, yeah. yeah, we need more than one, one ways of doing things. <laughs> so, wondering, I wonder... I want to lobby a big question knowing we're at the, like, we're nearing the end of our time together. But mm-hmm. So I'm just in a lot of tension around this big question I have for you. So I'll let okay. you take it or not. Okay. But I'm kind of curious on how you, how do you do this thing you're describing about training family therapists into some particular uh, practices that resist dichotomies? That's a fair mm-hmm. way to represent that how do you do that without trespassing on students like sensibilities and values and just yeah i'll just leave it at that yeah well i mean that's the big question right is um you could say the same thing about practitioners practicing out there like how do you work with people who um have values that conflict with yours um and so I re- I think for me the sim- I mean this is a big question like you said so <laughs> I could probably talk for another 5 hours about that but to put it simply a very short um glimpse into what that looks like for me is I'm not interested in changing the students values or their decisions in life or who they are as as people um I'm not interested in changing their worldview or their um, ways of making decisions. I think what I'm interested in doing is diversifying possibilities for them, right? And so for me, I kind of do, I do introduce um, sort of my pedagogy by telling them, you know, like I, in this class, I'm going to bring into question lots of things not because they're wrong, but because I want you to look at lots of different possibilities. Mm-hmm. And when you emerge after that process and you still choose the same thing as you did before, no judgment on that. But now, at least you know now that there's different options, there's different ways. And when, because of that experience, when you come across someone who's holding different, different um, orientation as you, at least you will approach them with curiosity, you know? And I think that's one way of resisting dichotomy, right? Is rather than seeing somebody at face value and knowing them already before you um, really get to know them. Um, I think that sort of level of caution is important, no matter how passionate you are about your values. Um, I think that level of caution is important for social justice, even though I believe social justice is really, really important and worth pursuing. Um, But again, like you said, because it has become a marketing tool, it has now gotten simplified and sort of made into something different. Um, And we have to be careful what we're accessing when we we access particular words, right? Uh, Meanings change over time so 
yeah, I'm I'm gonna keep it short like that. But no, I appreciate I I so appreciate your response. It's, has my head spinning with so many questions and thoughts. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm in a lot of ways just grateful for you being able to like bring some language to your, uh, to the mess that you described, this kind of social crisis and some of the ways that you're noticing students coming into the MFT field and intersecting with some of your own values and perspectives as it relates to social justice, um, multilingualism, Kind of what it means to be a Korean American, Iranian American, the ex American. Mm-hmm. Ex American sounds wrong, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like the hybrid, hyphenated yeah. American, right? <laughs> yeah. Hyphenated American. Not, not EX American, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so having multiple perspectives. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we wanted, right? We wanted diversity, not just tolerance, but we wanted to like celebrate and connect with diversity. This is what we were asking for. Yeah. Yeah. Wanyang, was there anything in our conversation or questions you might have hoped I asked or things that you would hope to have said as we wrap up here? No, I think this conversation definitely took a different direction than what I had anticipated at the beginning. I feel like I've made some political statements here that Hmm. that, um, is true to who I am now but wonder about the permanence of anyway, it's, it's a process, I guess. Well, and to your point, I think there's something within, I'll speak to my own third space, um, American cultural relationships with politics is very dichotomous Mm -hmm. and you, it all, it's often preceded any political dialogue in my experience is often preceded by an identity statement. I'm a Democrat, Mm -hmm. I'm Republican, I'm a leftist, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And any following discussion becomes an assault on that identity. Mm-hmm. And I say that because of my experience with Persian culture, at least, is you talk about politics. That's kind of just what you do. You talk about it, mm-hmm. you discuss ideas, and it is what it is. It's not like a – there's tension, but it's manageable. It's not like yeah. my experience in the United States where it's almost scary if you yeah. venture into that territory. Yeah, I think it, currently it is that way, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Wanya. Thank you. It was really good to be with you. Thanks.